Keep your Bibles open at this great prayer, part two of a great prayer that Isaiah puts before us. If you're new to church, you will have noticed earlier in the service that together we recited the Apostles' Creed. And uh, there have been various expositions of the Apostles' Creed. We find them in some of the documents of the Christian church. One of those documents is the Heidelberg Catechism. That catechism is loved by Reformed folks because of its pastoral warmth and its gospel clarity. And in its answer to the question about the first article of the Creed, it asks this question, what do you believe when you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? The catechism answers that question like this that the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth and all that is in them, and who still upholds and governs them by His eternal counsel and providence, is, for the sake of Christ His Son, my God and my Father. In Him I trust so completely as to have no doubt that He will provide me with all things necessary for body and soul, and will also turn to my good whatever adversity He sends me in this life of sorrow. He is able to do so as Almighty God and willing to do so as a faithful Father. In the context of that catechism, the questions, of course, are about the problems and difficulties, the adversities and infirmities of life. And the solution for those who are able to affirm the Apostles' Creed is that the solution lies in who God is, in all His almightiness and His fatherliness. Now, those two ideas, those two themes are intertwined right throughout the Bible. They are formally introduced to us in Exodus chapter 3. In that chapter, Moses is called by God to go back to Egypt and to set his people free. And when asked how he should be introduced, God replied by giving Moses two, two names by which to identify him. First of all, God said to Moses, tell them, I am that I am. That name for God is a name that immediately signals a a qualitative difference between God and everything and everyone. Everything outside of God is by its nature different from who God is. It is distinct from who God is. Anything outside of who God is has to be made by God has to be upheld and governed and sustained by God. Because the God who is there is the God who is able to say about Himself, I am that I am. He is self-sustaining, self-existing, self-sufficient. He just is. Everything else has to be made. So the God we worship is not confined to space. He cannot be located anywhere. He is not confined to time. He does not belong to the sphere of time to which we belong. 
nor is he confined to what he has made. What he has made is external to himself and is utterly dependent on his will. I am that I am. Now, that's a title, frankly, that you cannot get your head around. It is beyond our comprehension. We have to say right at the very beginning that the God we worship is incomprehensible to us. And so God gives Moses a second name. Go and identify me like this, he says. I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I am the God of your fathers. In other words, as God communicates to Moses what he should say to the people, he is telling him that he should communicate to the people God's almightiness because he is God and his fatherliness because he has revealed himself and has reached out to his people to make himself known to them. We've been studying the book of Isaiah And from chapter 40 particularly, though it's throughout the book, Isaiah has been stressing the almightiness of God. He's been using this word, this phrase, I am, again and again and again. I, I am, God says. And there's no one else, there is nothing else. I and I alone am self-existent. I stand alone. I exist in and of myself I am not, as you are, contingent on any other properties or any other powers, any other influences or ideas. God is. Isaiah has been emphasizing that over and over again. And he rules in his power. He rules over history. He rules over all things for the sake of his people. He can take up, as he would, Babylon and Persia. He can take up pagan nations He can use those pagan nations, those influences and powers. He can use them at his own will, at his own bidding, for his own purposes. And then after having used them, he can judge them. He is God over all. But in all of that teaching, Isaiah has not lost sight of the fact that God is fatherly in his dealings with his people. Even when he's describing very early on in the book the coming Messiah who is this figure, this divine son who is, has divine properties and divine titles. When he's describing the son, he, he says this, he's the mighty God, he's the everlasting father, the prince of peace. Fatherliness is an attribute of God as God. As, it's an attribute of God as Trinity. And although God reveals himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the Father, if you like, is the most fatherly person of the Godhead, nonetheless, fatherliness is an attribute of God himself. You find the Holy Spirit acting as a father, as it were, as he creates life in the beginning and as he creates life in the womb of Mary. You find the Son gathering his people around him, treating them like his children, giving himself for his children, gathering his children, and giving them back to his Father in heaven. Now, in this great prayer, we find the people of God resorting to God, who is both almighty and fatherly. It's all about prayer. It is a prayer. And as we read it, we discover what the basis of believing prayer is. I want you to see this. 
Did you know that this word prayer, wherever it's used in the Bible, every word that's used meaning prayer has the idea of asking for something. And our asking for things from God has to be based upon God's almightiness, first of all. The believer cries out to God. Look at verse, uh, the, the verse 15 of chapter 63. Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. Do you see what the what the prayer here is doing. He is, or she is, first of all, acknowledging that the God to whom they are praying is a God who is not part of this world. He is, he is not merely something or someone here upon the earth. He is looking upwards towards God. He is urging God who is above him to look down upon him. He, he's referring to, or she's referring to, the heavenly dwelling of God. That dwelling of God that is especially holy and spectacularly beautiful. That heavenly place where, that God has established as His home address, which Jesus tells us when we're talking to God to address Him as our Father in heaven. Where does that place God? It places Him above us, beyond us, over us, as our almighty King and glorious God. Now, we have to say this. This is important to get into our heads, that even heaven is part of God's creation. You have to understand that God as He is in Himself, God before anything existed, does not have any place where He is. He is invisible. He is everywhere. There is no place where God is not. There is simply, before there was any creation, there was no place. There was only God. That's very hard to get your heads around. Trinity Sunday is a good Sunday to try and think about it. But let me tell you, you will not leave this morning knowing any more than what I've just told you. Because God is incomprehensible. So in order to make himself both visible and comprehensible and knowable, what does God do? He creates the universe. He creates beings with whom he can interact. He creates angels and he creates people. He creates a place for them to operate in. For us, it's the earth. For the angels, it's the universe, the powers of the air, the invisible world of the spirit. And then there is heaven, a place in which the angels call home and which the believer calls home. That is a special place where God is pleased to put on display something of His splendor, something of His glory, a place where He chooses to be particularly and intimately available to angels and people who are there in His presence. Are you with me? Heaven is a created space for us. Now, as, the, as this prayer prays, he thinks about God in that heavenly realm. He uses language that denotes both a temple in which God is worshipped and a palace from which God reigns and rules over everything. And when Jesus teaches us to pray our Father in heaven, 
He he is urging us to do what this prayer here is doing when he addresses our Father, verse 16, and he addresses our Father in heaven and asks him, urges him to look down from heaven and see what is going on on the earth. It's a good place to start. We start with God as the Almighty God who is over everything. But also we address the God who is our Father. Do you notice how he goes on to do this? You are our Father, verse 16. You, O Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer from of old is your name. At the end of verse 16, he's going to pick up this idea of fatherhood again later on in the prayer. God is Father. He even addresses things that are a mark of God as our Father. He is zealous and He is mighty. That is, He is compassion, He's passionate about His commitment to His promises and He's got total strength to tackle any task, conquer any foe. In fact, He goes on to talk about the inner parts. Verse 15, the stirring of your inner parts and your compassion. In other words, this God has compassion. He has compassion on His people. He loves His people. These are always the hallmarks of His ways with His own people. This inward longing and this overflowing love is always a characteristic of God. We start off with our Father in heaven. Now, here's a mistake we sometimes make when we talk about God as a heavenly Father. We start by talking about human fathers. We start talking to children about their human fathers. And we say, your dad does this, and your dad does that, and God is like your dad. Let me tell you something. That is bad practice. Bad practice. God is like nobody's dad. He is like nobody's dad. You need to get that out of your head altogether. Maybe you had a bad dad. And every dad is insufficient and inadequate in so many levels. God is not like your dad. There are no human examples. There are no human representations that clearly and categorically display anything like the uniqueness, the onlyness of the God whose zeal and might, whose compassion and love are beyond our grasp. Fathers can want to emulate that. They may strive to be something like God, but God is absolutely on His own. So here is the basis of believing prayer. We come to one who is almighty and fatherly. Then secondly, the thing to note is the boldness of believing prayer. I said earlier that prayer involves asking. We should ask. And asking implies not only asking for things, but asking about things. In other words, asking questions. Not only asking for gifts that we want, we want God to do things for us, but asking questions that come to our mind when we approach God. And you will find that in this prayer, these believers are doing exactly that. The first question they ask is the question, where? You see that in the middle of verse 15. Where are your zeal and your might? We've heard about your passion for your cause. We've heard about your power to rescue. We know about your commitment to your promises. 
We understand about your giving of yourself to your people. But we have this dreadful feeling that you're holding back from us the sense of that and the feeling of that and the experience of that. That's what these people are saying. Do you notice the very language that is used? The stirring of your inner parts, your compassion, are held back from me. It's not that there is some external power that is keeping God away. It's not that there is some external influence that is coming in between God and me. It is that God Himself, as it were, is holding back the demonstration of His compassion and His love, His deep love for His people. These people, as they come to God in prayer, are not verbally attacking God's person. They are not in any doubt about God's power or their care, His care for them, but they are perplexed. They are perplexed. And they're coming to God in their perplexity, and they're finding, as they come to God, that they know this God to be their God, and that this God, who is both Almighty and their Father, can cope with them asking questions like this. John Calvin says, you know, there's a profound difference between believers and unbelievers at this point. For when, when the believer sees no evidence of God's kindness, when the blessings of God seem to be being withheld from us, the believer still continues to acknowledge a powerful and kind God and call upon Him. That's what these people are doing. That's why you know they're believers. They really do sense a distance. They do wonder whether God's forgotten them and isn't acting for them. They do feel that distinction, and yet, in spite of that, they insist on praying to Him, calling on His name. Why? Because they still believe that is what their God is like in and of Himself, and that's what He is to His people, that He will always care for His people, that He unceasingly governs the world for the sake of His people and for the church. They come to this God and to God's perceived silence or absence, and they say to Him, "'You are our Father.'" You brought us into existence. We would not exist as a church, as a people, as a nation, a holy nation, apart from your power. Deuteronomy 32, 6 puts it like this. Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? From the very beginning, Israel understood that its existence as a church, that is, as an assembly of God's people, was due to God's work of creation. God had given them birth. God had made them. They had existence because of their Father's initiative and their Father's will. And although the Old Testament doesn't have the clarity we find in the New Testament about what the name Father means, it does teach us this, that the fatherhood of God means that God gives birth to His church. God creates His people. God forms and of His own will, as James puts it, of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. Creating the church is God's work and God's work alone. 
And the second thing that the Old Testament teaches us about fatherhood is this, that the father has compassion on his children. He is tender towards his children. He listens to his children's cries. He asks his children to call upon his name, and his ear picks up their cries, and his heart responds to his children. He loves his children. He is anxious about his children. He never lets one thing happen in their lives about which he is not concerned and for which he is not committed to act. God is not like us. He is our Father in heaven. And these people recognize that. Do you see in verse 16? Abraham was there was their father. He was a great and godly man. Israel or Jacob, he was a great and godly man. But these two great and godly men, human figures, great fathers in the faith, these great fathers in the faith could not help them. They could not bring people to spiritual birth. They could not come and step in and be the proper guardians and protectors of Israel. What they needed was not these great men. What they needed was God, their heavenly Father, to act on their behalf. They're saying to God, why do we not feel you? Where are you? Where are you? We feel as if you're distant from us. Verse 17. They ask another question. Why? Oh, Lord, why? Now remember, these are not rebels voicing their anger and pinning the blame on God. These are not people who are looking for an excuse to dodge the guilt that uh, the Word of God might be bringing into their hearts. In fact, if you read, read on in the prayer as we did earlier, you'll find that they are quite prepared to say to God that uh, they had sinned. Uh, you were angry. We sinned. In our sins, we've been a long time and shall we be saved? We become like one who's unclean. All our righteous deeds are like polluted garment. You know, these people are not dodging their sin, but they're coming to God and they're saying, why didn't you intervene? Why didn't you stop us? Why didn't you, why didn't you put a brick wall in front of us? Why did you let us go down this road of sin and disobedience without interrupting our fatal flight from you? No attempt to justify themselves. Look at the language they use. Oh, Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? They were wandering like sheep. Back in chapter 53, they'd admitted this. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. They, they recognized that fact. But why hadn't he stopped them? Now, you see, there's a, there's a principle here that a heart set on disobedience or a heart set on disbelief hardens itself progressively against the word and will of God. When God is speaking to you, when he is addressing you, when he is challenging you, and you come under the word of God week by week and you resist the word of God, maybe there. In the words of Eric Alexander, maybe there are some people you will not let God speak to you through. Maybe there are some things you will not let God speak to you about, and you resist these things. What happens? Your heart gets harder. You see, this is what Pharaoh's problem was. 
fact, the language they use here about themselves is the language the Bible uses of Pharaoh, Pharaoh in Egypt. Pharaoh hardened his heart. The Word of God came to him through Moses. Pharaoh hardened his heart. And if you harden your heart long enough, if you let it go on long enough, there comes a point where God seals it up. He says, that's it. Now your heart is irretrievable. It is hard eternally. When I was a boy, I used to listen to Billy Graham in the black and white movies things that they had in those days because it was that long ago. Actually, the black and white stuff was old then. But anyway, he used to quote this verse in Proverbs somewhere, I think it is, or Ecclesiastes or one of those boys. And uh, he would often quote these verses, He that hardens his heart, being often reproved, shall suddenly be cut off, and that without remedy. You come to church. Why is it in Revelation 2 and 3, when Jesus is addressing the churches in Revelation, he says at the end of each of the letters that he sends to the churches, he that has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. It's because within the church of Jesus Christ, there are people who are not hearing the Word of God. And that's what these people are talking about here, you see. What is their solution? Look at verse 17. Look towards the end of that verse. What is the solution? Here it is. Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. They are seeking God's intervention because they are his servants. In in the book of Isaiah, these servants are the followers of the servant, The servant is the Messiah. These are the followers of the servant, the Messiah. These are the ones who have come to know him. They are, they have an, they have a heritage. They, they have an inheritance in the Lord. And through the work of the servant, the servant, these servants have come into relationship with God. Their status is as servants. What is it servants do? Servants obey their master. But they also have a part in the heritage. That is, they have part in the inheritance. They they belong. They are heirs of God. And these people realize this, that they've been redeemed and they know it. That they've been promised the earth as their inheritance. And they know it. But here they find themselves right now in the wilderness, tempted and tried beneath the sun buffeted by life, betrayed by their own heart. And they remind themselves that these believing people are God's possession and they need God's help alone. Look how he goes on. They go on in verse 18 and 19. They feel abandoned. You're holy people. Held possession for a little while. There was a period there, they're saying to God, there was a period when we thought we were doing quite well. We seem to be established. The work was going well. But now look at us. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Those are serious words here. Is it possible for the church at any point in its history to speak like this to God? Look at those words again. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled. Here we are at a time in the history of this great nation, which God has blessed with the Christian gospel 
from the beginning. It was formed of people who were being persecuted elsewhere and came here. My forebears persecuted elsewhere, and they came over here to find a place where they could preach the gospel freely. For hundreds of years, the gospel has been preached here freely. And what has happened in this secure environment where there is freedom to preach the gospel? The church has done what? Has it maintained its holiness? Has it maintained its purity? Has it maintained its gospel clarity? Or has the church in great chunks surrendered that purity, that clarity, that authority? Does the church now look in great chunks, even within evangelicalism, as if this is a people over which God has never ruled? living like those who are not called by His name, who are so caught up with the celebrity culture of the world, so caught up with the morality of the world, or impressing the world, or reaching the world, that they become like the world, and they've lost the clarity of being God's holy people. It's a serious word. Clarion call to the church in America to be what God has called it to be. See, there's a healthy dose of realism in this text here today, and it's this. The outward nation of Israel was never coextensive with the believing remnant in Israel. And the outward church has never been coextensive with the believing core of the church. Having your name in the membership role does not mean your name is in the Lamb's Book of Life. That's what our confession of faith says. In chapter 25, it says this, the Catholic Church has been sometimes more, sometimes less visible. Particular churches and its members are more or less pure, according as the gospel is preached. The purest churches under heaven are subject both to mixture and error, and some have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. When God steps back from His church, the powers of negation and chaos in the form of human adversaries do their worst Israel, the church of God, is hopeless without an attentive Lord. All she can cry for is, Lord, return, Lord, return, return. Well, the question is, will God act? Here's the third question. The question is, when? We go to chapter 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, they cry. It's very abrupt, very strong. They're crying out for God, tear the heavens in two. Tear this this spatial distance between us and the heaven of heavens where you are. Tear this canopy that prevents us from seeing your glory in as much as you will display your glory. Please tear that apart that we may see you and that you might descend and come down amongst us. That is what the church needs. That is what we need. What they're crying for is the direct and decisive action of God on behalf of His people. 
They're asking for a theophany, for an appearance of God himself. Look at the imagery of quaking mountains and flaming fire and steaming liquid, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and fire causes water to boil. Those are elements that we find all through the Bible that accompany the appearance of God to Israel and Sinai and so on. What are they wanting God to do? They want him, make your name known, they say. Make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down and the mountains quaked at your presence. God, we want you to do what you did in Moses' time. We want you to do what you did in the past, those great actions of God those great demonstrations of your power. We want you to scare the living daylights out of the nations so that they come to you for mercy, so they come to you for grace, so that they come to Christ for salvation. Why do they cry to God like this? Is because they understand that God is the sole sovereign over all things and all people. They learned that in their tradition. There in Moses, you shall have no other gods before me. And so they say this, from of old... From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. Verse 4. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. Neither history from of old, neither revelation heard by the ear, nor observation seen with the eye has brought any other God to light. There is no God but God. The gods of the nations only exist as a figment of their imagination. They take their god, they put him on the shelf, and there he sits. He does nothing. He says nothing. He writes no letters. He never gives reassurances. He doesn't even smile. He just sits there, and he's as dead as dead can be. Somebody comes in, a hooligan knocks him off, then he'll smash on the floor. There is no god but God. And no other God has ever acted for his people the way this God has acted for his people. They recite these things. They remind themselves of these things. And they remind themselves of the relationship he has with them. You meet with him who works righteousness, who joyfully works righteousness. This God is unchangeable in his requirements, but he's also unchangeable in his grace and mercy. He is the father of his people. Look at verse 8. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm. Sorry, that's the wrong verse. Verse (laughs) 8. Long chapter. But now, I got too excited there. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay. You are our potter. We are all the work of your hands. The child would not be there without the father. The pot would not be there without the potter. The artifact would not exist but for the craftsman. Do you see in each of these three figures? They're not accusing God of inaction. They're not accusing God of damaging his own goods. What they're doing is they're stressing the underlying relationship. They are the artifact. They are the pot. They are the children. God has made them what they are. And they're coming to God in good praying fashion, and they are laying down that relationship as the basis for the petitions they're making. And so the erring children 
may be taken back home. The shattered pot may be remade. The artifact may be reworked. This is boldness in prayer. You notice it's prayer that admits guilt. Prayer that is blindingly obvious in the presence of God about the failures of the people. But prayer that urges God's attention. Prayer that refuses this modern propensity to stop praying and blame God when anything goes wrong in my life. The Israel of God must pray. The Israel of God must pray. It must turn itself over to its sovereign Lord and wait for Him to be merciful. We need to be bold in our prayers on the basis of our relationship with God. But there's one last thing in these verses. And we might refer to it as the blessing of believing prayer. What is the blessing of believing prayer? It is this. That it is as we pray that the answer begins to take shape. As we pray, the answer begins to take shape. Let me show this to you. Back in chapter 63, verse 15, they refer at the beginning of this section, speaking to God about your holy and beautiful habitation. Then in chapter 64, verse 11, they talk about our holy and beautiful house. The holy and beautiful habitation is a reference to the heaven of heavens, God's holy heavenly habitation, the place where he meets with angels and redeemed people. The second refers to the earthly house, where God had promised to meet with his people. Whenever they gathered in the Old Testament, the tabernacle, and later the temple, now in the assemblies, the synagogues, the the gatherings of God's people where we're together, especially there, he promises to be particularly closely and personally present. The first heaven of heavens is inviolable and unalterable. It is utterly holy. It is constantly fit for God's presence. The second is malleable and changeable susceptible to being defaced and disgraced because of God's people's sin. The earthly house was meant to be a replica of the heavenly house. It didn't happen under Israel. It didn't happen in the church. And what they needed was somehow to be connected to that heavenly habitation of God. What they needed was that heavenly habitation of God to come down. Oh, that you would rend the heavens. I take you with, with me for a moment down to a riverside. Crowds of people are there. Famous preacher is preaching. Someone comes through the crowd and asks the preacher to be baptized. The preacher is hesitant and reluctant but gives in to the request. And when Jesus was baptized immediately, he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest upon him, and a voice from heaven saying about him what that voice could not say about Israel. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. 
and the temple of God came down. A little later on, he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. The temple of God came down. And that was just the beginning. That was the foretaste. Because there's more to come. Here is God's church today, and we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God's church today is the locus and display of the holiness and the beauty of God, which is why we mourn the sin and the schism or schism and the compromise and the unholiness that so often marks our corporate life. What we are meant to be is marred by our failure to be what we could be by the grace of God. What has Jesus done for us? Well, he has taken us in all of our weakness, and he has brought us, the writer to the Hebrews says, he has brought us to that heavenly Zion, to that heavenly city. He's brought us near to God by his own blood. We meet with God by the blood of Jesus. And that's not the end. For as we pray this prayer with these believing people, we are reminded of something else that's going to happen. The Apostle John puts it like this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. The language of cosmic disruption that heralds the fall of one empire and the rise of another. And in the Bible, that language foretells the day when the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Let's pray together. We come boldly to you, Father. We come not in our own merit, but in the merit of our Savior. We come confidently nonetheless, for the blood of our Savior has opened the door into your presence. We have our where's and our why's and our when questions. We come and pour them out before you because you've invited us to do so. We pray that you would please draw near to us now and in your mercy hear our prayers, that you would hear from heaven, that you would not be so terribly angry with us, but that rather in your mercy you would show us compassion. Pray for your church. We pray for your church in this country. We pray that your church would once again lift up the gospel and not only lift it up and proclaim it, but also practice it. And that, Lord, we'd have done with all this worldliness that destroys the purity of the bride of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.